0: Hello and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. Today we're going to discuss a place to live in Luxembourg. I'm very happy to welcome Louise Benjamin and Graham Wilson, both Luxembourg and UK lawyers. Welcome to you both. Hello, good morning.
1: Hello Lisa, good to be back.
0: Lovely to have you both. And in person, of course, during the first initial COVID lockdown, we had our Zoom chats, but the intention was always to bring you both into the studio here and to discuss various topics related to law and living in Luxembourg. So the first topic we've chosen to speak about is something that's really important for anybody who wants to come and work and live in Luxembourg, and that is a place to live. We're going to focus today on Renting, And next time, we'll discuss buying in the super hot buying environment of Luxembourg. But just to start us off, Louise, when it comes to renting in Luxembourg, how can we go about just finding a place?
2: You can find a place online or you can go to an agent. There's obviously a difference if you go to an agent or rent through a private person, because with the agent, you as the tenant are most likely to have to pay the agency fees. That sometimes is misunderstood.
0: Yes, because it's quite the opposite, in fact, in the UK, where we wouldn't do that. It would be the owner of the property. So that is something in reverse for some of us coming from an Anglophone background.
2: Correct. That's a lot of money to add on to your initial bills because you've got the fees, which is probably one month's rent. You also need to have three months rent as a deposit and you've got to pay the VAT and you've got to pay one month's rent in advance. More or less, you need five months rent.
0: It is really so much money when we think about that coming to Luxembourg, you're just starting out, things feel unsettled, you're trying to find that place to live and then
2: suddenly you need that five months rent up front almost. It's a huge amount. A little bit more than five months rent because you've got the VAT on the agent's fees, you might have the état de lieu extra amount. If you're really stuck though, you, you might be able to get some help from the government for your deposit.
0: And when it comes to the tenancy agreement, you just told me this morning it can be oral or written.
2: It's true. In many countries in the world you can have an oral agreement. It's a contractual arrangement but I would certainly not recommend it. I'm quite sure neither of you would recommend it. Even with a witness I would not recommend it.
1: There's a lot of things that you can do by oral agreement. Obviously it can be very difficult to um, the day after you made the agreement for both sides to agree on the same thing. So it's more a question of evidence. It's the same thing in many countries and the law sometimes makes provision that there should be uh, written agreements but it's pretty rare. So for example in employment law I mean your employer is supposed to give you a written contract but that's a very specific provision of the law.
0: Well when it that's comes the to renting a lot of people coming here some might be with families they might rent an apartment or a home but there would also be people who would be flat sharing. Now tell us about some of the issues that might come a cropper if you're sharing
2: Very often when you're sharing a flat, there's only one person mentioned on the lease. So that one person takes full responsibility. You can try and sue your co-tenants, but they are not on the lease. So the landlord will not care about them. He, He wants you to pay. And of course, if you're the one that put the three months deposit down and then you leave and the others stay on, you're a little bit stuck because you're still responsible for people who are living in that flat. So you should definitely get the deposit transferred to them with the landlord's agreement. Is there any difference between a lease and a tenancy agreement?
1: No, no, it's the same thing. Just coming back to what Louise was saying, I think you have to be very careful if you are doing flat sharing, and that is to make sure that there isn't anything in the lease agreement that prohibits it. The landlord, of course, is interested in having the rent, but he's also interested in having a rather straightforward relationship. So he's got one person to look at, not be chasing after a group of people. But you really do need to make sure it's in the lease that you can have other people who are living there. Those other people as well might have issues relating to the commune when they try and register that they, want to be able to prove that they have the right to live somewhere rather than in theory just living on the street.
2: And also the other thing is if you only have one person on the lease and that person unfortunately passes away suddenly, the other people could get mm. thrown out, literally. Mm. If they're not in a registered partnership, if they're not married, if they're not the children so you could end up facing eviction if something terrible happened.
0: That's a very unfortunate thought but a very important one because in that time of grief you wouldn't want to be landed with no home either. Is there any way you can overcome that legally?
1: Well, the best thing to do is to have a written agreement between you. The, you know we we say this really all the time. When you're starting doing something with people that you are at least friendly with, then everything is fine. And everything's all fine until the moment when it's not, for whatever reason, um, for reasons maybe completely outside your control. And this is not necessarily just to do with renting. It's to do with a lot of things. You have an agreement and people of of good faith will uh, abide by their agreement. But it's better to have it in writing because we know even when there's written agreements, there are some uh, different ways of interpreting them.
2: And make sure you have a proper lease agreement because there are Mm. certain things that the law provides for. Mm. Could you give us some examples of those things? So, for example, how long the tenancy will last. But even then, even if it says, you know, it's for two years, the landlord can't just throw you out. He has to give you three months notice. Some of the issues that we have written
0: into us at RTL Mm. today or comments that I often see on Facebook message groups, number one would be the inventory. Mm. And a lot of people don't get their deposits back. When you're setting out and you're getting that lease tenancy agreement in place, what can a would-be tenant do to secure that return of a deposit.
1: In the present market, there are more people looking for premises than there are premises available. So when you're looking, you're trying to find something for a reasonable price, and you find something, then you're under a lot of pressure to actually get it signed up and to, and to move in. The basic rule is you have to see what the condition of the premises are. We're talking here about mainly about premises that are not furnished. The basic underlying rule is that when you come to the end of the lease and you vacate the property, it should be in exactly the same condition as when you moved in, fair wear and tear accepted.
0: Whatever that means, that lovely grey area.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So what is fair wear and tear? To take one very classic example, can I put some pictures on the wall? Because I have to put in some, some screws or some blue tack on the wall or whatever.
0: First question there, do you have to ask your landlord about that or
1: not? In general, not. You can use the premises as a, a normal person. So you can't carry on a commercial business and things like that. If it's in an apartment building, you as well as the what the landlord says you can and cannot do, the rules of the apartment building will have rules as well, which will deal with things like putting laundry on the balcony, having pets. So you have to really look at those things. And the difficulty is that when you're in a, what is essentially a seller's market, and you, you ask these questions, which are perfectly reasonable questions... Sometimes it can get a little bit, uh, little bit tricky. If you're dealing with an agent, usually that should be easier because the agent is a professional and they should have that information at their fingertips. Should. There is something called état de lieu. The way it should happen is that when, you, when you're about to move in, you're supposed to um, look at the, the état de lieu, which is an in, either inventory or state of the premises.
2: It's not obligatory.
1: No, but it would be, you'd be foolish not to do it. In theory, what happens is the landlord and the tenant get together. They go round the premises, whether it's a studio or an eight-bedroomed uh, villa, and they note the condition of the premises. And they both sign it off. I mean, nowadays, um, even if you're doing it personally, you should do it with photographs. Because what happens is at the end of the of your lease, so when you, when you leave, and you want to get your deposit back, the landlord will say, oh, yes, but that's fine. I'll give you your deposit back, but we've got to deal with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven repairs, etc. And you say, well, no, because it wasn't like that. It's just fair wear and tear. And so you do an état des lieux when you enter the premises, or before you enter the premises, and an état des lieux when you leave. It's almost as important as having the lease itself signed so that the, both parties can see what the state was. And as you rightly said, Lisa, of course, what's fair wear and tear and all that? So there's always some wriggle room, but there is whenever human beings are interacting. To be absolutely blunt, my advice is don't do that état de lieu yourself. There are firms in Luxembourg who will do it for you. They are not expensive and they know all the things to look at. And if there is a dispute then having their statement or having them on your side is just, it's night and day when it comes to discussions.
0: Mm. From your point of view, and you've both lived here a long time, you've both got Luxembourg nationality, what are the biggest pitfalls when it comes to renting?
2: (laughs) For me, it's this getting this deposit back at the end. Also things like charges, because you have to pay a monthly charge. It might be 50, it might be 100 euros a month. And then for several years later the landlord, you know, even when, once you finish your lease, the, the landlord can claim back much higher charges. So it can come as a shock when you've left. And
1: mm. Very good point. Is it, it, a,
2: it happened to me before. Can you Can you explain that further? Yeah, so what, because I don't what,
0: think we can fully... Charges on an apartment. So, so w- for
2: the charges for the cleaning of the uh, communal areas, for the lift. And for example, let's say the lift was repaired during the time that you lived there. You might dispute that that's anything to do with you. Or the garden, the communal garden areas, or cleaning the car park, or any additional costs?
1: On an ongoing basis, it's only an estimate. So those are the payments which are for the all the common areas and common services within your building. So by definition, an apartment isn't standing by itself. If it's standing by itself, then it's a house. (laughs) Even if there's only two apartments in the building, there will be some common charges. Maybe it's only the lights in the stairwell, but there will be common charges, and those are split between the tenants. The law there is very clear as to how those charges are split. Basically, it's on the floor area of the apartment. So that's the common charges. But when you start paying your rent, the charges are just an advance. And what happens at the end of the year the person who is managing the building which may be the owner or may be a, a, an estate agent they then do an account which goes to the owners and then the the owner will see okay for apartment number 1 the com- my share of the common charges is 100 euros and you've paid 50 during the year therefore he'll he will come to you and say i want another another 50 now the problem there is that luisa is very rightly focused on two things Those charges, if there is, for example, a major repair to the property, then that should not be included in your charges because that is then something that is amortised by the owners over a period of time. So there can be some interesting discussions.
2: Or if the lift breaks down five times during the year and that's an expensive item to repair, Mm. who's responsible for paying that? Who is responsible?
1: Well, generally it would be the owner. It depends on your lease agreement. It depends mm-hmm. what you said. You can split these charges however however you want.
2: So when you don't get your deposit back at the end, it might be because of the état de lieu, the inventory, or it mm. might be because there are additional charges to be paid mm. and simply the owner doesn't have that information available. That's why you might not get your deposit back for another year or two because they're, yeah. they're still but that, looking that at common charges.
1: Sorry, but that's because they're not doing their job properly and and you can put that in the lease agreement. When
0: it comes to prices, we have been in this corona situation. So, as I understand it, rent increases have been frozen for the entire period. That's right, yes. And when it comes to what could be rent- Until the end
2: of 2020, for the moment.
0: When a lease or a tenancy agreement comes up for review, what could a landlord increase rent by?
2: This is something that's actually under review- Because there's this 5% rule which has been a subject of court case and is now subject of change in legislation or potential change in legislation. And any charge in rent may not exceed 5% of the amount that the landlord has invested in the property. So the concept of how much the landlord has invested in the property also includes how much he paid to buy the land and to build the house on it that he's renting to you. So there's been a a lot of discussion about this 5% rule, but, but we can't comment on it for now because it's a bit tricky to understand
0: what that five percent means then because it's not related to the rental amount it's related
2: to the capital of the property no, they're
1: saying so that the five the rent cannot exceed five percent of the cost the acquisition cost of the premises to the landlord
2: you know if it cost a hundred thousand to build the house then they shouldn't be charging more than five thousand per year of rent mm. so if they built the house 50 years ago that's where the problem starts
1: on the face of it it's a quite a simple rule as soon as you start to look below the surface, it is very, very complicated. Because then, if I'm if I'm unhappy, I sell my property to my wife at today's market value, and off we go. You know, it's very difficult.
2: Because a house built in 1950, a house built today, has a completely different price. Mm. So, from the point of
0: view of the renter and how much rental would be, are you suggesting that because this is under review? It is likely that rents could increase.
1: Rents increasing is a mar- is a question of the market. Could the issue- be the opposite,
2: decreasing. Yes. In, in this case, there was a court case about decreasing the well,
1: rent. Well, yes. The, the the tenant said I should have a decrease in rent, and the landlord counterclaimed and said it sh- no, it should be increased.
0: And they went to court over this. Yes,
1: and I have to say I haven't read the judgment, but from the reports I've read, it's a, it is a, quite a complicated issue, and the judgment is not at all straightforward. Let's say, but I think it's under appeal.
2: Uh, but anyway, there's a, a yeah. The, but the, the legislation is yes. Going so to so be the
1: minister uh, yes. Cox has said that this is going to be reviewed.
0: Mm-hmm. In your experience, when it comes to having the tenancy agreement, the, the lease, the clause diplomatique, which most people will understand, is that break clause that you could live there if you're not quite sure, if you're starting a new job, which I assume many people might be, if it's their first rental in Luxembourg.
2: Would you suggest to always ask for that clause diplomatique if you might have to leave the country?
1: Yes, because otherwise, Um, I mean... mean If
2: you lost your job and you would have to leave the country.
1: I mean, the agreement you have with the lease, is it's an an agreement. And the landlord says, well, I don't care. You can live wherever you like, but you've rented my property. I
2: have heard that there's sometimes misuse of this clause. (laughs) Like
1: everything. What that does is it, it entitles the tenant to step out of the lease, provided that they are actually leaving the country. Well, it's called a diplomat- clause diplomatique because, of course, that was always the situation with diplomats. They, w- they would get postings to uh, which could be changed at very, very short notice. That is a standard, very common clause in a Luxembourg lease contract, but it doesn't have to be there.
2: Mm-hmm. But it is a useful thing to have if, if you can choose yes. to have it. But actually, going back to leases, make sure you get a signed copy, an original signed copy. Every party should get an original signed copy. Mm. And you should ask for an energy pass also. Why is that important if you're renting, apart from the fact that you'll have to
0: pay for the bills?
1: Well, it's mainly that building is compliant and you'll have an idea about the bills.
0: Now, moving towards the end of lease or tenancy agreement, what should we keep in mind? What's important for us to be aware of?
2: First of all, even, as I mentioned earlier, even if the lease is for, say, two years and you want to actually leave at the end of those two years, make sure you follow what it says in the lease. It doesn't just suddenly terminate on that day. You need to perhaps give two months notice as the tenant. The landlord probably has to give you three months notice. If the landlord wants to get rid of you early for personal use or they want to rebuild.
1: Or not renew. Generally, you have the automatic right to renew. But if the landlord wants to stop that, then uh, there's a very limited Reasons for doing that. And one of them is because they want a family member to live in those premises. Family is reasonably extended, I'm third, not third generation, but third link or whatever. But they have to give you six months' six notice. Six months' notice. You, and, and you
2: have to follow various formalities with registered letter. So let's say you, as the tenant, are given your two months' notice or whatever it says in the lease, then you have to return the keys. Until you return the keys, theoretically, you should continue to pay rent. So even if you've moved out, but you haven't returned the keys. Theoretically, the landlord can ask you for rent for those extra days when you didn't get around to taking the keys back.
0: And just another point to ask really, I know it's quite common practice in the UK for that final month or two to be taken from the deposit. That's probably not the case here.
2: No, I think the landlord would still want you to pay.
1: Mm. No, I mean, it's. They want, they want
2: the deposit for the, any extra charges or any damage to the house. So then you need to also get a, a leaving état de lieu and a leaving inventory done. Mm.
1: That's very important as well. I mean, I, when you come in and when you leave, get it done because it, it, it will prevent a lot of um, heartache, heartache. It won't eliminate it completely.
2: <laughs> and there's no specific time limit within which the deposit has to be returned.
1: No, unless it says it in the lease. So uh, what will happen is that, uh, especially if you've gone through an agency, the agent will produce, a, or the landlord will produce a lease agreement. And it's a contract like any other. You can negotiate any part of that. But in the present market, it's more a seller's market than it is a buyer's market.
2: But I think so. one of the problems with the deposit is that in the past, people simply had a bank account, which the landlord could dip his fingers into and take at the end. He didn't have to ask anybody. Correct. And now that has changed a little bit. You can have bank guarantees whereby the landlord has to prove why he should take the money. And also, are the
0: deposits kept separate to the bank account of the landlord here?
1: Generally, no. Well, I mean, they very
2: often, no, I mean, there's different ways. You can transfer yeah. money directly to the landlord. And then
1: it's in the landlord's bank account. All he does is owe you money. Right. And if he goes bankrupt.
2: Because in the UK <laughs> law, that's quite different. Yes. Yeah. But normally you have a special bank account in the tenant's name. Mm. That, that would be the correct way to do it. Without the tenant's consent, the bank can't take that money for the landlord.
1: It is common now not to have actually pay the landlord money, but to actually have your bank provide a guarantee. But there are also now a number of companies, not banks, who will also do that. So for an annual fee, they will provide the guarantee to the to the landlord.
2: Yes. So that's another way of avoiding having to having to pay out the cash.
1: Yes. So you can save that cash.
2: Mm -hmm. You can also get a sort of insurance. It is. It's kind
1: of it's it's a little bit like an insurance.
2: You can also get a deposit paid by the state. The Ministry of Housing will help you. Well so, I'd like to move on to that actually. I'd like to ask a little
0: bit about social aid or social housing and rental in that capacity.
2: Well the deposit if you're renting privately, you could get help for the deposit. If you're earning less than three thousand, so it's about two thousand nine hundred for a single person, you could go to the state and say, I need help, I can't pay this deposit up front. But during the next three years, you must still save up to have that money ready in case it's needed. Let's say you're two adults and two children. It's approximately 6,200. That would be the maximum that you could earn to let you have the possibility to ha- have state help for the guarantee. I think that's not very well known amongst no, the that international but, but population. That's
0: very useful to know. And it's one of those things. There's so much to learn and often in another language when you come to Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. That
2: you just fill in a form online. It's actually easy to do. Is available in English, yes. Mm. You just go to guichet.lu and you can find out all this kind of information. We'll try to add the exact link at the end of this <laughs> podcast yes. so that people can find it. And
0: just moving on to social housing in general, what are the options available to people here? Can a person come here hoping to get a job? How can they go about even asking or finding out about social housing?
2: You might get help with housing for, say, a maximum period, I think, of three years. And you need to have a low-income family, perhaps, for certain circumstances, such as divorce, or you lost your job very suddenly, single parents, or people who are subject to, say, domestic violence, whatever. You have to have a housing problem, low income, and the social security, the social services will get involved. You have to know that they will be involved. And what are they called? Have a look on the social housing agency. It's the Agence Immobilier Sociale, the AIS. You just have to fulfill various criteria. For example, you you must be legally here. And you have to have sort of a plan, your own sort of business plan, as such as how you're going to be able to afford housing in the future. Mm-hmm. There's various public and private agencies that will help you apply for this housing and you fill in the form but it's really difficult you might be on the list for a very long time
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well hopefully it gets to the people who need it most because as you mentioned you've mentioned domestic i think the
2: problem is that there are not enough houses available and that's another thing landlords should consider this scheme a lot of landlords don't want low-income tenants but in fact if you sign up to this scheme you get a lot of tax exemptions normally when you receive rent from your tenants you have to pay a lot of tax and you'll get some exemptions on that I think it's 50% on net rental income. And you'd also be paid probably the full rental by the government or the... Well, that's the other thing, it's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. The government will help you with it and you don't have the problem with the rental deposits. So although you have a low-income family, you might not get as much rent as you would privately. You also have fewer problems.
0: You have it guaranteed, covered by
2: the agents. And let's say you're not happy with the tenants because for whatever reason it's a disaster. You've got somebody to go and complain to. Got someone to go and help you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: housing is and has been for a number of years, a, a, you know, a hot button topic in Luxembourg because it is difficult. I mean, it's a simple question of supply and demand. A lot of people are coming to Luxembourg to work, leaving aside questions of uh, refugees or anything else. And there is simply not enough housing to go around. Several successive governments have been trying to address the problem, but it's um, it's still there, as it is in many other countries.
2: Don't forget the ombudsman. You can always go there for assistance and you can go and see the ombudsman for you know, deposits that haven't been returned. But the problem is, even if he decides that you ought to get your deposit back, his decision is not binding, then you would have to go to court. You can go to court on your own, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Who pays for the fees? You do.
1: I love the word ombudsman because it's one of the two <laughs> Swedish words that have found their way into the uh, international language, I have ombudsman and skål. The main thing I would say... You have
0: to explain what skål means now.
1: Well, skål is Swedish for cheers, isn't it? Like prost, cheers.
0: Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. Oh. <laughs> I don't
2: speak Swedish.
1: Yeah, obviously, you don't know many Swedish boys. You didn't reply to that. <laughs>
2: oh, I no, work I with one, in fact.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> fine. I think the main thing is, it's it's always good to have a friendly relationship with your landlord, but it is a business relationship. Anything that that you want to do, make sure it is in writing. If you make changes to your lease agreement, if the landlord says, oh, no, that's all right, don't worry about that, send him an email and say, this is what we did, this is what we agreed. Make sure that you keep it well documented and then you'll have a very easy time. As they say, um, good fences make good neighbours. Well... (laughs) Written um, I written, written, that, written agreements are much, much better.
0: On that small little point, actually. <laughs> Sorry, we're extending it now. <laughs> Our conversations never quite end. Is an email sufficient? If, for instance, you're walking around mm. to do the inventory at the beginning of your rental agreement, but... Sometimes you can't find out what doesn't function until you live in a place. Mm-hmm. If you then send your landlord an email saying, oh, this isn't working and here is a photo of it, is that binding or not? It's not binding, no. but it's helpful.
1: It's, exactly.
2: Yes, it's, as long as you do it, as soon as you find out. You
1: have to, I think, also be a little bit in- insistent. You know, you need to have a response. This is not just landlord and tenant. This is everything. Nowadays emails are just so prevalent that I say that with all clients. You're doing a contract, you can send it and but you need to get response. a response and, and you need to push them. Do you agree? This is what we said. This is what we said, isn't it? If I if you don't agree, let me know immediately.
2: And, and in any case, for example, if the dishwasher's not working, normally it would say in the lease that, that those kind of mm. utilities would be the the problem of the landlord, not the tenant. To mm. It might be a 15-year-old dishwasher, you can't expect it to be perfect.
1: It's a question of fair wear and tear. The capital items are for the landlord and the the running costs are for the tenant, and therefore, when you have items of equipment, even in an unfurnished apartment, you will often will find a fitted kitchen, and of course, those items will have a certain a certain age and um, after uh, whatever the life is, three years or five years or ten years of expected life, it's up to the landlord to replace them.
2: Don't you find that funny when I first came to Luxembourg that you could rent an apartment without a kitchen? What mm. I found mm. funny is you can rent a place with no light fittings,
1: yes. Now, that's common.
2: I find that I very I find that peculiar. really bizarre, coming from the UK.
0: Yes, you have to find, literally, you're, you're, you're coming to a place with no light There's not even a
2: single light bulb. <laughs> no. yeah.
0: That's because
1: the last tenant took them.
0: Yes. <laughs> but what are they going to do with them? Because they're, they're hardly going to fit the next place in exactly the same fashion. Well,
1: the first apartment that I rented, it just, I mean, you had built-in bathrooms. But in Thank the kitchen, God for that. <laughs> in, in the kitchen, all it had was a sink unit. A sink <laughs> unit with cupboards below. That was it.
0: <laughs> I won't ask what year this was. Well, about your cooking
2: skills for
0: the next Thank you both so much for all of your expertise. Uh, we love hearing from you. It really is one of the most hot topics in Luxembourg. We're going to touch housing next time. Any questions, we invite them in. Please do email them. We love you subscribing to this podcast, sharing your ideas and comments with us. Please do leave us a review. It really, really does help. The ratings on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you find the podcast. Thank you so much for your engagement. And if you have any other questions you'd like to ask, just drop us a line and we can chat about them. We do read all the emails, even if we don't always get the time to reply. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Louise, for being present here in the studio. Wonderful to have you on site. And we can't wait for many more conversations with your expertise in Luxembourg and UK law. Thank
1: you very much. Thank you.